This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Andy Tenner. I am faculty in the Department of Emergency Medicine here at UCSF. Um, my, I'm an emergency medicine doctor, but I'm also an internist by training. Um, I did a dual residency. Uh, and then I did a fellowship in global health. With a, and I did a master's in public health at Columbia University in their Mailman School of Health. So my passion is trying to provide high-quality care to people around the globe and figuring out ways to make that happen. Um, that's evolved over time. Um, I have done some work in South and Central America, which is where I sort of started my career. Um, but for the past about seven to eight years, uh, most of my work has been in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, a lot of the work that I've done, I did work with, um, I was faculty in an emergency medicine residency for four years in Tanzania at Muhumbili National Hospital there. Um, I also, um, my initial passion was um, disaster preparedness and response. Um, so I worked in an active conflict zone in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I also spent three months running Ebola isolation units in Sierra Leone during the outbreak. That was actually where a lot of my, um, my view of global health really matured. Um, the Ebola outbreak was a fascinating study in all of the things that we shouldn't do and how we needed to try to fix things. So one of the things that I, really, that I realized with the, the outbreak in Sierra Leone was that Ebola was bad. Um, it killed a lot of people in a terrible way. But what was worse was the fear that Ebola generated and the fear that people had either to go to health facilities, they were worried they were going to get Ebola, the fear providers had that they were going to get Ebola if they went to work, and watching the health system collapse. collapse. I, see, I saw several people that died, I saw lots of people that died of Ebola, but I saw way more that died of untreated malaria, untreated hypertension, untreated diabetes, because they weren't following up um, in the healthcare system. So that's really where this started. And actually, my work with WHO started shortly after that, because um, for my three-week quarantine, I would have been on house arrest in San Francisco. And a friend of mine had just started working at the WHO. Um, and um, given my, my recent experience in Sierra Leone uh, and the work that um, that we were doing there, I actually did my quarantine in Switzerland and worked at WHO while I was quarantining. <laughs> so the Swiss were much more reasonable about their, about their quarantine. Uh, but that was where a lot of this work started. Um, so for those of you that have been to this series before, this is probably going to be a bit different talk than the other innovation talks. Um, but hopefully, I want to, by the end of this session, I really want you guys to see that there, there are different ways to innovate. Um, and sometimes rethinking your innovation is the innovation. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about this work. So currently, I am the co-director for the UCSF WHO Collaborating Center for Emergency and Trauma Care. A collaborating center is a special relationship that an entity has with the WHO. To be able to do that, you, are, you have to, just to apply, you have to have had two years of work with the WHO. Then it's a long vetting process. So it took us about 18 months for it to be designated. Uh, and that's because the Collaborating Center designation has to go through the U.S. government, the Pan-American Health Organization, which is the regional organization for the WHO, 
as well as WHO headquarters, and ultimately the approval is signed by the Director General of the WHO himself. So it's a very special recognition. It's not something that many places have. We're the only collaborating center for emergency care in the Americas, and we were the first collaborating center for comprehensive emergency care in the world. So this is a, it's a big deal and something we're really excited about here at UCSF. Um, and I want to explain to you a little bit about what we've been doing. So just for disclosures, I don't have any industry funding related to any of this. I don't think we really, really talk about products uh, except for maybe the next slide. Uh, and I don't endorse it. I have no uh, interest in any of, these, uh, any of these entities. So when you think of innovation, what do you think about? Okay, so we're talking about global health. The thing that most people think about in it, it, with uh, global health innovation are these guys. Drones. Everybody loves drones. Um, there's lots of funding, actually, right now for drones. And the idea is you don't have to have people, right? And that's one of the big problems in healthcare is the personnel shortage. The issue with drones, though, is that they may not quite be ready for prime time yet. So this was um, actually, I don't know if you guys remember this, here in San Francisco, the Millennium Tower that is reportedly sinking, they sent a drone up to try to evaluate some damage, and uh, the drone crashed here in San Francisco with some of the best climate in the world, you know, in my unbiased opinion. So what about a place like this? So this is Khartoum in the Sudan. Okay? A drone's not going to do so well in these winds. All right. So one of the issues with tech is that it has to be adapted to the setting. This is what we call the command center. So this is the central station in the emergency department that I worked at in Tanzania at Muhambili National Hospital. So it looks like any other um, station in a hospital. You've got computers. Okay? The patient care rooms are kind of surrounding it. There's even air conditioning, which is kind of a luxury. But there was one day where I walked out of a room. I remember it was in the evening, probably around 6 or so. The sun was starting to go down. And I looked over, and one of those computers looked like it was smoking. And I thought, oh, gosh, what is going on? So I walked over to the computer, and I looked at it, and I realized that the black cloud that was swarming around the computer was not actually smoke. It was mosquitoes. The mosquitoes that had come out in the evening were attracted to the heat coming out of the back of the computer. And all I could think was, oh, man, that's not going to last very long. I don't think the designers took that into account when they were designing the computer monitor. Um, and if you look at this setting, so up at the top here, you can see light coming through there. It's hard to see, and I didn't have a good picture of it. But above this panel is actually open windows, and that's how we got ventilation in the emergency department. So dust comes in, moisture comes in, bugs come in, okay? All things that computers don't love. One of the biggest challenges with working and in particular in low-resource settings, is the wide range of settings that you have. So this is Dar es Salaam which, in Tanzania, which by the looks of it, again, this is a very modern city. They have skyscrapers. You can get Wi-Fi. Um, you can get any of the modern amenities that you would get in a city in the U.S. But a few hundred miles away, this is DR Congo. This is a house. This is a family with a dirt floor cooking over a wood uh, wood-burning stove with mud-plastered um, walls and a thatched roof, okay? So when you're trying to plan for healthcare, you have to plan for both of these settings. And that's one of the things that makes it incredibly challenging in the global health world. 
Another thing that's interesting is the way that systems have developed. Okay, so I would guess that everybody in here has a cell phone. And I would guess that everybody in here has a plan for your cell phone. Right? So a certain amount of money is deducted every month, and that gives you minutes and text and you know, uh, data, depending on your usage needs. Okay? But if you're in a country where credit isn't really a thing, and in several countries that is not a thing, most people don't have credit cards, how do you set up a recurring need that you have? So the way that they do this in a lot of, um, in a lot of countries is they have these scratch cards. So you pay whatever the amount is for the scratch card, you scratch off a little code here on the back, you type that code into your phone, and it gives you that amount of credit. And from that credit gets deducted your minutes, your text, um, your, and your data. Okay? This card is 10,000 Tanzanian shillings. Okay? In Dar es Salaam, the average salary is about 24 million shillings, annual salary. Okay? And that's in the most populated urban area. In the capital, it's 14 million shillings, and it's much, much less in the rural areas. So you're paying per megabyte, essentially. So a lot of you know, YouTube, a lot of, um, there's no you know, streaming video services. Those kind of things get very, very expensive. So when we're thinking about innovating, we have to consider the data and the bandwidth that people can access. So how do we innovate in these settings? Am I saying that tech is not a good thing? How dare I in San Francisco? <laughs> no, not really. I'm not, it's not, tech has, is actually, you know, tech is very useful, but it has to be adapted to the setting. Taking tech that we have here and transplanting it to another country is not useful. But lots of countries are innovating with technology in really cool ways. So this was, again, in rural DR Congo. This setting has no running water, has no electricity, but these guys have set up a little business where they have solar panels, and for you know a few um, francs, this is Congolese francs, you can charge your cell phone. Okay? So there's lots of ways to innovate, but it's hard for us to try to do that from afar. The key thing is that you have to have involvement of the people that are actually going to be receiving this and that understand the culture much better than you do. We always see the world through our own perspective. Okay, so... I grew up in Texas, I've moved around the country, I've traveled a lot in different places, but I had, that's all colored my view of the world. And we all have that. Okay? Some people see a face, some people see a little boy sitting on a, in a meadow. And recognizing that is half the battle. So understanding that we're coming into things with our own uh, perspective on, on the world and that may or may not be accurate on the ground is really, really important. And respecting the opinions of the people who are on the ground and who know this is, again, essential. And the other issue is sometimes it's not a lack of resources. It's a misuse of resources. Okay? So in a lot of the settings that we work um, and that I've been to, there, yes, there is a lack of resources if you tried to compare it to someplace like, say, UCSF or San Francisco General. There's definitely a, a decrease in the resources. But I remember one hospital that I was in, in, in a country in sub-Saharan Africa, where there were only five rolls of gauze in the counter, in the cabinet. And we had a patient that passed away. And the nurses used three of those rolls of gauze to wrap that dead body. You know, there's reasons for that that I don't necessarily understand. It's a it's a, you know, I think it's, it has something to do with the cultural beliefs. 
But there has to be a better way of doing that than wrapping the body in those three rolls of gauze. And so some of that, again, you know, me coming in and telling them that that's not a good idea is not going to work either because, you know, what do I know about, about the cultural norms? But having, sitting down and having a discussion with why is that necessary, why did that happen? Is there a way that we can use some other resource, a sheet, say, or the patient's clothing? Is there something else that we can do to use these resources in a better way so that those, those gauze rolls can be used for patients that could benefit from them? All right, so I've talked a little bit about innovation in the setting. What is the problem? What is the problem that I'm working on? Um, And what is the problem that we're facing in global health? So the reality in the world is that you are more likely to die if you have an illness or injury in a low-resource setting. That's for a lot of different reasons. Some of it is lack of of human resources. Some of it is lack of training. Some of it is lack of, of physical resources, and some of it is, you know, is um, insufficient public health um, innovations. So things like seatbelt laws or rules for roads and how they should be paved. Um, things like you have to have manhole covers over open holes in roads and speed limits. Those kind of things all contribute to decreased mortality. But if you go to one of these settings, no matter who you are, whether you were born there or you're me going to visit, There's nothing that makes me special and immune to the same things that are killing the people that live there, okay? Maybe I have some more resources, and I work at UCSF. I have excellent travel evacuation insurance. But even with excellent travel and evacuation insurance, it takes 24 hours to medevac somebody to get them out of the country. So for the first 24 hours, you will be treated by whatever resources are available in the country, okay? And in a lot of cases, for emergency care and emergency cases, um, that, those resources and that knowledge is not necessarily there. The other thing is we focused on, um, we focused on diseases like HIV, TB, and malaria, um, infectious, disease, infectious diseases over the past decade or so. But if you look... Just injury alone, not just emergency conditions, but just injury, kills more people than HIV, TB, and malaria combined. Now, some of that is because of incredible valiant, um, public health efforts over the last 10 years that have made a difference in these conditions. But we've been able to manage these conditions, at least to help decrease the mortality. But we have this elephant in the room that nobody's really talking about. You don't necessarily hear... Um, uh, public figures, Angelina Jolie is not coming out and talking about road traffic accidents. And it's really important because this is what's killing a lot of people, and it's killing people who are in their prime. It's killing people in the teenage to 50 to 60 years, the people who are working and contributing um, in, in their most productive years to society. So this is a huge, huge health impact. If the breadwinner for your home dies in a road traffic accident, that impacts whether your children can go to school, it impacts their future success, it impacts whether your parents are taken care of, it has a huge impact on the family. So this is a really, really important public health issue that we're only now just starting to recognize. The other thing is we as humans everywhere have a tendency to wait to deal with things until it stares us in the face. So if we look at the, enti- the cost of the entire Ebola response, okay, the global response was $3.6 billion. 
To provide health care to every man, woman, and child in Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia would have cost $1.6 billion. Okay. It's incredible. The amount of money that we spent to put out a fire where we could have used half of that to provide health care to that entire region for a year. Okay. This is, but again, this is humanity and it's what we do. We don't want to think about this until it stares us in the face. But it's so important to not wait for the crisis, to try to anticipate the health care needs before, before we get stuck. So what does this have to do with emergency care? Okay. So I have a very simplified view of the world, so bear with me. Okay. So the way that I look at this, you have your emergency care systems. Okay. And in my opinion, the healthcare system is precariously balanced on this. Why is that? Think about what you need. So not from emergency care or your primary care, or just in general. When you access healthcare, what is when if you boil it down to one thing, what is the one thing you really want that healthcare system to be able to do? Any thoughts? Figure out what's wrong and fix it. Figure out what's wrong and fix it. Okay? That's absolutely right. You want them to figure out what's wrong with you and fix it. And that is more important if you think that that thing that's wrong with you is going to kill you or your loved one. Okay? So if you don't trust that the system can take care of you when you are dying, about to die, or someone you love is about to die, you're not going to trust it. And when that happens, the system falls apart. It's really important that when emergencies happen, that people believe that the system can take care of them. And emergency care is a fairly new concept. Even in the U.S., it's only been around for about 50 years. When you look at other specialties, other specialties have been around much longer. But the idea that there is an approach to managing emergencies that can help to organize the chaos, as I like to call it, and try to save lives, to prioritize people and save lives, that's a pretty new concept. And it doesn't exist in a lot of countries yet. So, I know what you're all thinking. What about prevention and primary care? Okay. What do you think? Well, I already told you, I'm part internist, so obviously <laughs> I think primary care is very important. And prevention and primary care are really the keys, right? It's so much better to not have the bad thing happen to you than to have the bad thing happen to you and have people take care of it. But the reality of the world right now is that we don't have enough healthcare staff to take care of people. So in Sierra Leone, for example, prior to the Ebola outbreak, it, the um, World Health Organization estimated that um, there were about, to meet the Millennium <laughs> Development Goals, which were the main goals at the time, that Sierra Leone would need about 44,000 providers, doctors, nurses. Um, they don't really have PAs, I believe, there, but, but providers. Okay. Pre-Ebola, right before the outbreak happened, there were about 7,500. Okay. That's it. And 10% of those died in the Ebola outbreak. Right. So we are vastly understaffed. Right. It's really important that prevention and primary care be planned for and be implemented, but it's going to take decades before we get to a level where those things can, where, where everyone can access those things. So in the interim, if we can target the people who are about to die, we can have a huge impact. 
Okay, so these two things, in my mind, go hand in hand. You need to have prevention and primary care, absolutely. We're way behind the curve on that, and so we have to try to get caught up. But it's going to take us a long time to get caught up. So in the interim, we need to work on targeting what we can with the resources we can. And the lowest common denominator are the people who are closest to death that we can save. Okay. So what does that look like? So here in San Francisco... Let's say you walk outside, and please don't do this, and you get hit by a car, okay? Obey the crosswalks. But if you don't, you get hit by a car, what happens? What do you guys think? Call an ambulance, absolutely. So somebody is going to call 911, okay? An ambulance is going to come. You're going to have providers in that ambulance who are certified by a regulated training system who know how to take care of you. They're going to transport you to a designated facility, okay? In San Francisco, it's San Francisco General's, the trauma center. We have been certified by the state and have lots of regulations for what we have to do to take care of you. Once that ambulance drops you off, a provider who has been trained in a systematic way is going to assess you. They're going to use a systematic form of triage to sort you into um, priority to be seen based on how sick you are. You're going to be seen by um, physicians who have a certain level of training and who have been trained in a a, um, system to evaluate you. And you're going to get either go to the operating room, get discharged, or go to the intensive care unit, where, again, you'll have providers who are trained in a fairly standardized way to take care of you. Okay? What happened here? This is a group of people. This is, again, in rural DR Congo. They're making palm oil back here. Okay, over an open flame, so they've got a very flammable substance over an open flame with a very flammable roof over it, children running around playing. Okay. What happens if one of those guys gets burned or the roof catches on fire? Huh? Die? Die? <laughs> Maybe. So there's no 911, there's no number to call. If you called the dispatcher would have to speak somewhere around 120 different tribal languages to cover everybody in the region. If they did, by some miracle, there's no ambulance to come. The roads are so bad that most, um, especially during rainy season, only motorcycles can make it through anyway. If, by chance, somebody could get to you, they're not necessarily trained. There's no training for uh, first responders at this point in DR Congo. If they were to get you to a facility, that facility would likely be understaffed. There may be a provider there, but that provider is likely not trained in emergency care techniques. They don't necessarily know how to handle trauma. They wouldn't necessarily, if you came in, you know, with 50 other people, they wouldn't have a systematic way to find you, to find the person who is the sickest. Okay? So this is what we're up against. Right? It's not insurmountable even though it sounds a little scary. Because one of the things that I have found that has been the most inspirational throughout my career is that while we're looking at this and saying, oh my gosh, this is crazy, the people that live on the ground there are saying, oh my gosh, this is crazy, and we've got to fix this. And I've seen some of the most impressive local champions who have taken this on and won. So it's it's not insurmountable. It's just... Uh, Again, it's a collaboration. This is the type of healthcare facility you might be taken to if this happened. Okay, this is one of the rural health centers. There's not any meds there. 
There is an operating room, but to be operated on, you'd have to buy the petrol to run the generator, to run the machines. Uh, and petrol is sold in liter bottles where they refill water bottles and they sell it that way. So you'd have to, the odds of them even having enough if you could afford it or low. So again, these are the areas that you would be working in. All right, so what's the solution? So I've already told you the biggest part of the solution are these incredible people on the ground. Um, so many people that I've met throughout my career, and the reason that I'm still doing this um, as my third or fourth job, I don't know what, where it ranks now, uh, is that I have met such incredible people that are working day and night to try to fix this problem that you can't help but help them. Um, so whatever we can do to try to make their lives easier and to support them, that's what we're doing. So we've been working in collaboration with the World Health Organization. So as I told you, my friend who started it at the World Health Organization, she started the first program for emergency care. They had prevention programs, they had some treatment programs, but that gap from when the bad thing happens to you in the world and how you get to that final care had been overlooked for a long time. So she started to try to take this on. She's worked in a lot of different settings, similar to ones that I have. And so she's seen these same champions and said, what can we do to help them? So ironically, the first step in this was defining what emergency care is. This was sort of one of those things that kind of popped up as a need. And so it's been developed in a lot of different places, but it didn't develop in a systematic way. So the way that she started with this is she pulled together experts from around the world, so about 40 to 50 experts, and pulled, of which UCSF was included in that group, pulled us all into a room and said, what's emergency care? What are the key elements of emergency care? And so after a lot of debate and going around, and honestly a little bit of skepticism from some people that we would ever be able to come to a, an agreement, we actually came to 100% consensus on the key elements of emergency care. It's a very long and kind of boring document, but the magic of the WHO, they have turned it into an infographic. <laughs> so this, these are the key elements of emergency care. So if you look at this, you have something happen to somebody, okay? And somebody has to activate the system. So ideally, you want to have an access number. Okay, so that's one of the things that a system should strive for. Now, I've told you, in places like DR Congo, that may be very difficult. So maybe a number is not their first step. Maybe their first step is some sort of a taxi voucher system where somebody can call one of the motorcycle taxis, they have some basic first aid training, and they take them to the hospital. There's lots of different ways to skin this cat. What happens is you get... Somehow the system gets activated. You have some transport that shows up. Okay, ideally you want to have two providers or a driver and a provider in the back. They have some basic kit that they can take on scene. Transport the patient. During transport, you've got one person driving, one person in the back. That sounds really simple, but that doesn't happen in a lot of places. In a lot of places, you just have the person driving. And even in Tanzania, when we first started working there, you'd have a driver and a nurse in the front seat, and they'd show up with the patient dead. And the patient may have died hours ago. Okay, but again, this was just not something that was in, it wasn't common there, and so it was something that, that has evolved over time. So ideally, you want to have a provider in the back. They're going to do some interventions that are seen here in blue. 
Okay? When they get to the facility, there's some handover that happens. So they're not just shoving them in the door and driving away quickly. Okay? So there's some handover that happens to a provider. You have a systematic way of organizing the patients that come in. So triage, arranging people in order of priority. Screening, which can happen, for example, for suicidality here in the U.S. Um, Ebola screening was happening um, during the outbreak. Registration, some way of keeping track of where the patients are so you don't lose them, and some clerical staff who can do that. When they get to the actual emergency unit, you have a provider who can help take care of them. Okay? You have the tools that you need to take care of the patients, and you have some allied health workers that can help you take care of the patients, that can deliver care to the patients. Eventually, something happens, so we call it disposition. So they go home, they get transferred, or they go to the floor. Okay, and then when they go to the floor, there's some emergency care that happens there as well. So early critical care, early operative care, okay, those things happen in the inpatient unit. So these are all the key elements of what you need to have a functional emergency care system. So now that we know what you need, how do we figure out how to get that? So what they did... Um, again, this is this, the Emergency Trauma and Acute Care Program at WHO, developed what's called an Emergency Care Systems Assessment Tool. And again, this was a really novel way of doing this, but um, what they designed was it's a, a ranking system. But it's not uh, you get an 80% on this, you pass. Each level has five divisions. And so you could say things like, do we have an access number? No, we don't have an access number. And so you, you, do we have an ambulance? No, we don't have an ambulance. Or we, yes, we do have an ambulance, but we don't have, two provi- uh, we don't have a provider in the back. Okay? And so you tally up all of these things, all of the area of where you really are, and you look to see what the next level is up. Where do you go from there? And then the countries themselves prioritize things. So, for example, if DR Congo were to do one of these, they would say, well, an access number is important but we have to figure this whole multiple tribal languages thing out. So that's probably not going to be the best next step for us to tackle. But we could tackle something like having transport, figuring out transport to get patients to the hospital. So each country then looks and says where they are and then makes a plan to, ad- to address those issues. Okay? It is nice in that it's a non-judgmental way of doing this. It's not saying that you can't do what San Francisco General does so you're not good enough, okay? And San Francisco General won't pass all of these. No, no hospital will. There's no facility, or sorry, no healthcare system in the world that meets all of these criteria. We all have something that we can improve on. So it gives you a roadmap for how, how you can improve, what the next steps are. Now, once you have that roadmap, what do you do? How do you fix those things? Well, that's where we came in and where the WHO comes in. So one of the first things that was an issue was training. Okay? So people just didn't know how to manage emergency conditions because they weren't always taught how to do that. So we developed this basic emergency care course. This was developed by WHO and the International Committee for the Red Cross, and it's co-branded by the International Federation for Emergency Medicine. So I was one of four editors on this course. This is a free open access course that anybody can download There's a participant manual, there's slide sets, the facilitator guide is being finalized, um, but it gives you instruction if you're somebody who doesn't necessarily 
know how to teach or doesn't have experience teaching, but you see this as a need, it tells you how to teach in some ways to make sure that your students are grasping concepts. So this was just launched. This is breaking news. This was just launched two weeks ago. So um, this is brand new. But this is something, there's a lot of, there are courses that are out there, but a lot of them are proprietary and don't address low resource settings. This course addresses emergency care everywhere, no matter what your resources are. It assumes some basic things like you have IV fluids and IV sets and a few basic meds that are on the WHO essential meds list. Um, so this is one of the tools to help build healthcare capacity. Another tool that WHO developed that we um, UCSF contributed to, along with a lot of other people, is this emergency care form. So this is the trauma form. There's the trauma form, and then there's a general emergency care form. So this is like a clinical chart. In a lot of places, the charts are like what we used to have, which are a piece of paper, and somebody writes down the important stuff that happened to a patient. It's not very standardized, and if you're a new trainee, it's easy to forget things. I remember as a resident, having we have something like this on the computer, and I would go through and say, okay, breathing, you know, oh, breath sounds. Shoot, I forgot to listen to the lungs. Let me go back and do that. Okay? So for new trainees, this helps them. It gives them a, a systematic way of organizing their thoughts around a patient because they're filling, through the, they're filling in the form. The other thing that filling in a form like this does is it allows the hospital to collect data. And it allows, it facilitates quality improvement. Okay, so if you're looking and you're saying, wow, it's usually not that nobody's checking the breath sounds, but maybe it's that, you know, this blood pressure was low and they didn't address it. Okay, or there, there's some knowledge gap that you're seeing consistently across your staff. You can address that. And you can actually improve the care that's being delivered. This can be done on computer. So if places have electronic medical records, they can, this can be translated to the computer. In Tanzania, when we first started using a form similar to this, we had the form, um, we had a, a duplicate book, basically. So we had two copies of the form, and we had a piece of carbon paper. The providers would fill out the form um, as they're seeing the patient, tear it off. That piece went with the patient to the ward. And then we had the copy um, that was still left in the emergency department, so we could review those charts. It also helps because, as you can imagine, paper in the same conditions I described that computers don't love doesn't do very well either, um, and it gets lost. And so we can keep those um, books in, um, in cabinets where they can be locked away and kept out of the elements. Um, and the papers, because they're in a book, they don't get lost. Another thing that was developed by the WHO is something called a trauma care checklist. Okay. This is, again, a very basic concept, but it's two time points in a patient's care, and this was developed in a similar way to um, the airline technology. So it's like two critical points, so right after the primary and secondary survey, so that's the first time the provider evaluates a person, and then before the team, before you leave that patient, you do a second analysis. And you're basically just looking for things that might kill people, and it, again, helps to remind you to look for those things, or if you're seeing them, that you need to address them. We've also, we're working on developing an emergency care checklist that covers everything in addition to trauma. Um, and that will be coming out probably within the next year. This checklist has already been shown to decrease mortality in the sickest patients um, in a pilot study that they did just by having people stop and take a look again at the patient. And then triage. So triage is something that 
a lot of providers do in well-developed systems, um, and experienced providers do in less developed systems, but not everybody does. Okay, so triage is sorting. Okay, so in a lot of these systems, um, for example, and if you're working in Sudan, okay, you're trained usually in the British model, um, and you're trained if you're a general practitioner. Okay, you're going to come in, you have your clinic, and you'll see a patient at 8 o'clock, you'll see a patient at 8.20, you'll see a patient at 8.40, and you're going to go through these things. and Because they're trained using the all of the books and the information and the resources that we've developed in the U.S., it's been developed in Europe and the U.K. What actually happens is you show up at your clinic at 8 in the morning, there are 50 people out there, five of whom are going to die in the next two hours if you don't get to them. How do you figure that out? How do you know how to do that? Some people don't because they just assume, in a, you know, out of 100 patients that they've seen like that because they don't get to them in time, they die. And so they just assume that they're too far gone. But a lot of these patients can actually be saved. So triage gives you a quick way to assess patients. And so it's just taking a look at them. And again, you're looking at what brought them in. Are they having problems with the main, circ- the main systems? So airway, breathing, circulation, disability, which is your mental status, those, you don't die without having something wrong in one of those areas. So if there's something wrong in one of those areas and it's really wrong, then you need to see right away. So they need to go to whatever your high acuity areas, and they need to be seen by a provider right now. If it's not so bad but not great, they need to go to the clinical area and they need to be put in a queue, and you would um, sort them based off of these criteria. And then if... They don't have high-risk vital signs, and they're walking. You can, they can wait for a little bit longer. Okay, so this helps you organize patients so that you can see the ones that need to be seen first. This doesn't, there's lots of different types of triage. So we use um, a certain type of triage here at, in the U.S., but there's, different, there's several different variations on that that are, it varies from hospital to hospital. There's some triage tools from South Africa that those are a little bit too complicated. We tried to use them in Tanzania, and they were a little too complicated for what we were doing in Tanzania. And so this was actually another consensus process that the WHO put together, and we had people from around the world, again, UCSF was represented there as well, giving input into this process. Okay, So it's collaborative effort and people coming together and thinking through this and saying, well, in my setting, this wouldn't work. For example, in our setting, we have a blue level, okay? And a blue level is like, I need a medication refill, I need a note for work. Um, When we're telling people in, like, Tanzania that, they're like, who, I mean, why would you do that? In Tanzania, you'd have to walk eight hours to get someplace. You wouldn't go to get a note for work to the the facility. (laughs) So, So it's, you know, just, again, depends on your perspective. But getting all those people in the room together allowed all of those discussions to happen. All right, so as you have kind of guessed, I'm sure at this point, all of these tools were a lot of people, a lot of people involved, people from all over the world, um, and a lot of people worked really hard to get these tools to bring them to fruition. Um, As a collaborating center, we were one of those groups that's been working on this, Um, and it's been one of the coolest things I've ever been involved in to be able to do this, to be able to help with this and see these things in action. One of the things that we were really involved in as a collaborating center, just to give you an example, is the basic emergency care course. So 
there were a few things that had to happen for the course. Obviously, we had to develop the course. So we had, um, you know, obviously I was one of the editors. We had several people write sections. We had people review sections after, um, you know, we had people, contributors from all over the world who were experts in their field writing sections, and then they were reviewed by other experts. Uh, so we were a part of all that whole process. Um, and we had lots of people that spent weeks and months <laughs> at in Geneva at headquarters or here working on this and trying to make sure that we were putting out a high-quality course that nobody, first of all, was going to get hurt by anything that we recommended, that there were no typos that were going to kill people. Um, that's one of the scariest things about putting out a medical healthcare course is you move the decimal place over one and it's a big problem. So, um, so we had lots of people that reviewed that, and that was something that we were um, really honored to be able to contribute to. We've also worked on the other end in the implementation of the course. So we, um, so far, the course, it was, it was initially piloted in Tanzania, Uganda, and Zambia. And then we actually, con we had, we held two courses in Tanzania, and we've held six courses so far in Uganda um, that we've been able to help um, put on these courses, work with the Ministry of Health and the local hospitals and universities to put on these courses. So we trained trainers. So our, um, all of our faculty and staff went and helped to train the trainers, and then they observed while the trainers taught. Because, again, sending our faculty over there to teach is nice for our faculty, but that does nobody any good once we leave. So we were able to work with the groups um, and, again, see some really cool innovation. Um, I'm on a WhatsApp group with the Ugandan trainers, and some of the stuff that they've come up with has been really cool to see them take this and run with it. So that's another area that we worked with on this. But one of the things that we realized about this course, so it has to be a pretty simple course because the PowerPoints can't have a lot of pictures on them because, again, they have to be downloaded by people who are paying by a megabyte. Um, so, and then we're, they're downloaded in a way that people can pass them around on a flash disk if they need to. But we, you know, the way that the course is, is taught is a way that's familiar to many people in these settings. So it's a lecture style course. There are some skills sections. There are some cases that people go through. So we tried to incorporate some adult education theory into this course. Um, but we were a little bit worried that in, in some settings that's the most appropriate, and so this course has to work from Singapore to Somalia. So we, you know, in, in certain settings that's going to be the most familiar and comfortable for people. But in other settings who are used to more, um, uh, more uh, different adult education um, tactics, we wanted to give people the option to do um, to, to learn in a different way. So one of the things that we developed here, we actually, at the Collaborating Center, has developed two adjuncts to the basic emergency care course. So the first is a mobile app, and I'll show you what that looks like in a little bit. But basically it takes people through, your, when you go through the course, and I don't know how many of you guys have done short courses, but I do this all the time, where I go to the short course, I'm super excited about what I learned, I just learned all of this cool stuff, and then two weeks later I'm presented with what I saw in the short course and I can't remember any of it. I remember that there was some really cool stuff I learned, but it just goes out of your brain. So the app is meant to take people through. So they have a patient in front of them, and it's even worse when somebody's life's on the line. They have a patient in front of them, and they draw a blank. So the app will take them through the basics of managing those patients. Okay? It also gives them some opportunities to look up um, things if they have time, and they can say, you know, I know this patient has... Uh, a collapsed lung, but I can't remember what the treatment for that is. And so they can go and look that up. 
The other thing is some online cases. So this is more of the, for those of you guys that are familiar with educational theory, a flipped classroom type model. Now flipped classroom models have had varying success. But this is a series of cases. So what we did is we took the BEC course and we went through and pulled every learning objective out of it. So there were about 180. And then we took all of those and we put them into cases. So the cases are kind of a choose-your-own-adventure style. You go through and you learn. If you get the answer wrong, it makes you go back. And when you get the correct answer, it explains why the other answers were wrong. Um, so it helps people to go through this. The, again, this is something that we're... Um, people had asked for, and we're doing some research right now to see if this actually helps people. The thought is, in oftentimes in these settings where we're teaching, the course is in English, and many people in, in Tanzania and Uganda, for example, all medicine is taught in English. But that may be someone's third or fourth language. So having exposure to some of the terminology and, and the way the phrasing in English may be helpful to people before they go and have an in-person course. So this is what the website looks like where you can download both of these. So you can download the clinical cases and the app from this website. It's password protected right now uh, because everything is still being developed. Um, so we have some pilots running, but until it's ready for prime time, I don't want anybody to get hurt by accidentally <laughs> using this if it's not ready. Um, so you can download those cases. You can run them off the website if you have the internet bandwidth for that, or you can download them so that you can do them without having to use your data. The cases look like this. So they have a case file where, again, you can click to open in a browser window, or you can download the file. And it'll take you through several questions. When you get to the correct answer, it tells you why the answer is correct, and then it tells you why the other answers are incorrect. You can't move forward until you get the correct answer. And so it helps people learn, again, before they have exposure to the actual in-person cases, in-person course. The app goes through what we call the ABCDEs. So I sort of mentioned them earlier. Airway, breathing, circulation, disability, and exposure. These five things, you cannot die without having a problem in one of these areas. So it takes you through. It's a basic yes-no algorithm. Okay, so is the patient speaking easily? If I select no... It says, can the patient speak at all? If I select no again, is the patient conscious? If I say no, it says, look to see if the chest wall is moving. Are there signs of trauma? If I say no again, it tells you to do a maneuver to open the airway. Okay? So it takes you through this step by step. This is not taking you through how to take care of all things uh, in medicine, but it will keep someone alive long enough for you to go back to your reference book and figure out what's going on with them. So like I said, this stuff is actually being implemented now. So these are some pictures from one of the courses we did in Tanzania. This is several nurses that are learning how to use um, some airway adjuncts. Uh, it's what we call a bag valve mask to help breathe for a child. Um, the courses in Uganda just completed, um, and then we'll be doing some more um, in January. All right, so this is nice. We spent a lot of time on all of this, so we've worked really hard on it, but did it actually work? Well, the initial data is yes. Okay? So in Rwanda and Tanzania, two separate studies were done implementing emergency care in a major hospital there. And the, the in-hospital mortality just from increasing, just from adding the emergency care unit, controlling for other factors, was anywhere from 15 to 40% decrease in in-hospital mortality. Really impressive numbers. 
in Uganda, where we had piloted those four things that I talked to you about, as well as um, something called a resuscitation area designation. So basically it's saying, here is a bed. If someone is sick, they go in that bed, so that everybody knows if there's a patient in that bed, they are sick. Adding that in, in Uganda, the preliminary data for conditions that we can control for in the emergency department was mortality um, um, decline of up to 40%. So these things are showing... it's. Just very simple innovations. It's organizing the chaos, as I call it. But it's having a huge impact. So we're trying to scale this up. Okay? So what's next? What's on the horizon for us? So as a collaborating center, we've been, again, contributing to all of these um, products and helping to roll them out um, with WHO and then with other partners, partners in country, partners, other academic partners, um, one of the things that we're trying to do now is we're trying to take these things that we've developed and implement them using implementation science principles. So we're developing, we're, gonna, we're organizing an implementation network. So the idea is we're going to coordinate with ministries of health and then their designees in country and develop community, um, community advisory boards in each of these areas where the people that we're trying to teach, so the community in this case are the healthcare professionals, but going out to those rural communities and saying, here are the things that we have. What do you think? Do you think this will be able to be implemented here? What do you think the barriers are? Do you think this will be useful? Do you think that you know, people are going to use this or not use it? And get their input and help with implementing. So like I tell people with the basic emergency care course, I've poured a lot of my life into that course. I think it's a really good course. But if you take that course and you drop it on somebody's desk and say, good luck with that, hope your mortality rate drops, it's probably not going to, right? How we implement this is important. And so we're trying to figure out how we can scale this up. We have some small successes in countries, but how do we take this to the next level? So that's one of the main things that we're working on. Obviously, all of this stuff needs funding, and that's, you know, if you have any wealthy friends, let me know. Um, so that's one of the things that we're working on. But part of this, again, is just, you know, we're, we're emergency medicine. We're used to working with what we have. So part of this is just taking the people that we have and reorganizing the system um, and helping them to say what will work in your setting. How can this, can this help you? How can we implement it in a way that can help you? So, again, this is the implementation network that we're working on. And part of the reason that it's really important to involve the groups of people that are going to be actually using this is we don't want to be missing the obvious thing. Okay? We're looking at this through our lens. They're going to be able to give us the real-world impact, the things that people won't necessarily tell us coming in. So doing that in collaboration so we can bring in and the, our experience and say in other countries this has been done. And then they can come in and say that's not, that there's no way that's going to work here because of X, Y, and Z. And so then we can adjust from there. So that's the next steps for us. So after all of that, this is the ultimate goal, right? How do we get people, you know, our, our vision is a world where no matter where you are around the world, you don't die just because of the location you're in. Everybody's going to die, can't fix that, okay? But you shouldn't die just because of where you are, okay? How do we get emergency care? How do we get people, keep them from dying unnecessarily, Around the world, about 88% of road traffic accident deaths occur, I'm sorry, injury deaths occur in low, 
resource settings, 88%. Okay, 90% of people who die, die of some emergency condition. And we estimate that with these tools and implementing emergency care systems, we can save about 54% of those. Okay. Can you imagine if we could save 54% of people who die unnecessarily around the world? That's what we would love to do. So I hopefully, at the end of this, I'm sure you guys are going to have some questions, but I'm hoping that you will see as much as I do why this is so important and why this is such cool work. And if any of you ever are interested in helping out, we'd love to have you join us. So thank you guys so much for your attention. I really appreciate it. Can I answer any questions for you guys? Yes. No, that's a great question. That's a great question. I'm just going to repeat it for the camera. Um, So the question was, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the the question is we've talked a lot about sub-Saharan Africa, but we have a lot of issues in the Western Hemisphere as well, one of them being the opioid crisis. And there's a lot of, um, some new studies have come out that there are a significant number of deaths and significant number of our emergency conditions are due to the opioid crisis. Would, this, would some of these tools be useful in some of our rural areas around the U.S.? And the answer is absolutely. I speak a lot, and I should have qualified this, about sub-Saharan Africa because that's where I primarily work. But this, all of these tools were developed for use around the world. So those emergency care systems assessments, they've been done in European regions. They've been done in the Middle East. They've been done in Africa and in South and Central America, um, as well as Asia. So all of the regions around the world have done them, and all of them can benefit from some of these tools. Now, for example, the triage tools, like I described, those tools, you know, you may, it's not a, if a system has a triage tool that is different, that works better, that works well in their system, by all means, continue to use that. But this keeps people from having to reinvent the wheel. So absolutely. Some of my, our interns, when they were reading these um, cases, when they were reading the basic emergency care course, some of them helped with the cases, helping to try to um, make sure that they were understandable. I had several of my interns that came up and said, man, I wish we'd had this our first week <laughs> of internship. Um, I think this, you know, this is applicable everywhere, no matter where you live. And again, the, thing that, the way that the opioid drugs kill is through respiratory depression. So people take them, and, and you develop a tolerance to the euphoric effects of opioid drugs, but not to the respiratory depression. So somebody they take incrementally increased doses to try to get that euphoria, um, or sometimes if they've been using it for a long time, just to not feel bad, not to feel the side effects of withdrawal. Um, and so they have to take higher and higher doses, and then one day they just stop breathing. Um, so this course teaches you how to manage that, and these emergency care principles teach you how to manage those things. So, yeah, absolutely. I think any place that, that um, finds a gap in one of these areas could use these tools. Thanks. That's a great question. Yes. So the question is, are there um, differences in the needs in the various regions around the world? So in sub-Saharan Africa versus South and Central America versus um, Asia. Um, and yes, there are, you know, again, each system is kind of developed de novo. And so there are different gaps in different systems. Um, Sub-Saharan Africa has, you know, the, depending on the country, there's been since, you know, post-colonial, 
the post-colonial period, they've had to pick up a lot of the pieces and try to rebuild their societies. Um, and countries have done that with varying levels of success and with um, varying levels of resource and stability. Um, Tanzania, for example, has been quite stable since um, they since they declared independence. Um, but DR Congo has still has active conflict. So in places that have active conflict, resources are hard to get. It's hard to retain staff if they're being shot at or <laughs> coming under fire. Um, so those kind of things certainly contribute um, to emergency care systems and, and the, or the lack thereof. In um, South and Central America, there's very highly developed emergency care systems um, but there are also, again, there's an income disparity. So you may go to a private hospital in, um, you know, for example, in Lima, Peru, that's very well resourced, very well run, has very well trained staff. But if you go to the jungle, there's not much there because, again, nobody really wants to live there. And you, and in Peru, they send all their providers out for their first year. They do community service. Um, which helps them to staff those areas, but they send those providers out without basic emergency training. So you have somebody who wants to be, say, a nephrologist who's going to, you know, the jungle and is dealing with snake bites and, you know, spider bites and um, cold exposure and things that they may have never seen before. Um, and so, again, those, you know, so the, the resources or the needs are different, but in the similar vein. Um, and then the same thing again with Asia, he, even here in the U.S. You know, you have university hospital centers that have everything you could ever want and more. Um, and we're having debates about how much we should do, whether we should be doing all of these things. And then we've got rural, you know, if you go to um, West Virginia, for example, there's huge needs there um, in, in resources training and, and other, um, other uh, kind of quality improvement measures. So, yeah. Again, thank you guys so much for your time. I really enjoyed being here today and talking to you guys about this, um, and I really appreciate you listening and letting me do that. So thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.